really need to get together and let our voices be heard. This is Buffalo What's Next. I'm Jay Moran. I'm Bridget Jaipal Valenza. I'm Dave Debo. And I'm Thomas O'Neill White. After May 14th, how can we afford not to talk about race? About education, about segregation, about humanity. Since the dawn of this nation, racial violence has existed. The way we have designed our society has a big hand in what occurred in that Topps market. The suburban area everywhere, we must work and teach our children. We need to make sure that we put more funding in our programs that help prevent gun violence and more money into art. We're going to have some real healing. We've got to have space to tell some uncomfortable truths. And good morning. This is Dave Debo. Today on the program, Tesha Parker will be here. She's really been inspired by her grandmother's good works on the east side, serving people in need. She is the founder of a group called Rooted in Love. And as always, we'll hear from her, I think, in the best way, boots on the ground, grassroots, whatever really you want to call it, but a really informed look coming up with Jay Moran at what the community still needs. And obviously, in light of the top shooting on 514, what has changed over there? So that's coming up in a little bit. Tesha Parker with us. But first... Terry Alford is here. He's the executive director of the Michigan Street African American Heritage Corridor. They've launched a strategic action plan. It's more than really just that archway that you've probably seen or the Michigan Avenue Baptist Church. They have a lot of plans on tap to develop and recognize Buffalo's African American history, especially in that area, making that area kind of a a tourist destination. Terry, thanks for being here. Welcome. It's good to be here, Dave, and thank you for having me. Part of the reason I think why I wanted to have you on today is for the past four weeks on PBS, Henry Louis Gates Jr. has uh, been presenting a series on PBS called Making Black America. The idea is that there are spaces that were formed by blacks from from even as far back as antebellum days all the way up to the civil rights movement, um, black spaces where they could network, socialize, and, and even, I guess, in an unlimited way, be independent or at least to some degree free of uh, the discrimination that was around there. I think a lot of people think of maybe Harlem of the 20s, but there is more to it than that. Terry Alfred, again, from the Michigan Street African American Heritage Quarter. Do such places exist here still today? Oh, sir, absolutely they do. Um, uh, I'm a huge fan of the good Dr. Henry Louis Gates, as you know, Dave. (laughs) Yeah. And uh, he, one of the things that we pride ourselves in with our Heritage Corridors, the the great stories that come with it that's attached or connected to individuals, especially individuals that were connected to social, uh, certain social institutions or organizations, fraternal orders. And that holds true even with our corridor, with the history of the African-American experience in the city of Buffalo. So when you look at our, our Heritage Corridor, uh, Michigan Street, which is about 3.5 miles of it. Uh, it sort of is emblematic of about 185 years of the African-American experience in, you know, uh, culture, you know uh, really impacting positively the cultural uh, and economic significance of this city and the entire western region of Buffalo. So, uh, yes, they still do exist. Uh, it's emblematic of the Michigan Street Baptist Church that we talked about earlier. Uh, which served as one of the last stations of the Underground Railroad, but it also included the uh, Reverend J. Edward Nash House uh, that was home to the longest-serving pastor of the church, uh, along with his wife Frances and son Jesse, who later became a college professor at Canisius College. 
and it especially includes the Colored Musicians Club sure. uh, right across the street. And I have to tell you, Dave, if you haven't been in this part of the city, they're in basically steps away from each other. And I like to tell people when I do presentations that, you know, in many cases, these were basically like three degrees of separation. Started with the church, with folks coming out of the church and starting all these other institutions that begat other institutions along the corridor. I think the Gates premise is that they were places, again, outside of the white gaze, places where people could network, where they could almost work to try and be independent of the discrimination that was otherwise rampant outside those doors. Absolutely. Uh, so examples of that starts with the church, for instance. The, the, in the African-American community, in, in terms of our culture, and not much different than other cultures, it starts with the church, you know, yeah. uh, where people congregate and worship. Uh, but it, the church is more than that. It becomes more than that. It becomes a, a social institution of discussion and learning and networking. And so when we talk about the Michigan Street Baptist Church, you know, and, you know, uh, these, those individuals that uh, frequented that church, they were members of the Masons and the Eastern Stars, the Phyllis, Phyllis Wheatley Club. Uh, they were uh, members of, uh, in those days, the first semblances of social justice organizations in the guise of people like, or individuals like Mary Talbert, mm-hmm. um, uh, who herself was a social justice champion, women's rights, civil rights champion. Uh, so when you talk about these relationships, these networks, at that church, right next to the church is where uh, Mary Talbert lived, and she and uh, Pastor Reverend Nash uh, entertained greats, uh, national um, greats of the day, advocates and champions of civil rights and social justice, including people like W.E.B. Du Bois. And it was at her home where uh, uh, they, along with W.E.B. Du Bois and other national greats the Niagara of the day, movement. they created the Niagara Movement. Which was a forerunner of the NAACP. That's absolutely right. Founded and here in Buffalo. And founded I here about, in Buffalo. I don't think that's um, maybe as, as readily known as perhaps you want it to be. And it's our job to make it more readily known, okay. obviously. But when you look at um, Reverend Nash's wife, her brother, uh, Raymond Jackson, uh, who was a member of the church as well, uh, founded uh, uh, the, the semblance of the union, the Black U- Musicians Union, because black musicians weren't accepting the white unions. So they started their own out of necessity. And okay? that became the Colored Musicians Club. And that became the Colored Musicians Club. But there were also venues where there's a plaque now. The building's not there, but like the Little Harlem. Absolutely. So, again, these are examples of great stories of especially structures that don't exist anymore, but still hold the same power and importance in our in our community, in our and when I say our heritage, not just African-American heritage, but all of our heritage, if you call yourself Buffalonian. Um, uh, so Little Harlem was uh, an iconic club or establishment well before the club was even in existence. But in those days, that's where musicians came. Freaking, they came to Buffalo or those that resided here. If they needed work, that's where they went. But the Little Harlem served more than just being a club. It was a place where people's socialized, and again, more importantly, networked. Uh, I'd like to also mention to your listeners, further north up the street from these iconic places um, uh, that don't exist anymore was the Michigan Street YMCA, which was 
founded by Reverend Nash and some other leaders of the day. Um, and for some, it holds as much reverence as the church does. Uh, African-Americans that were migrating from the north and uh, after, Civil, after Civil War during antebellum days uh, and right into the early parts of the Industrial Revolution in our city, if you will, uh, uh, the first place they stopped was at the YMCA because that's where they were given lodgings and things that they sort of figured mm-hmm. it out. And at that place, they were given and provided networks and support and all types of things uh, that allowed them to be successful residents of the city. You and Gates both mentioned the Masons, the Prince Hall Masons. Uh, the Eastern Star is the um, ladies' auxiliary, basically, for the Masons. But what about the, I heard you say, the Phyllis Weekly Club so, Association? I've never heard of that so one. So the Phyllis Weekly uh, association was uh, a women's group, a women's organization, national organization, uh, and Mary Talbert again and Mrs. Frances Nash, the Reverend's wife, uh, st- uh, started the club in Buffalo. And uh, in those days, again, this was an example of the leaders of the day creating networks in order to make, you know, to bring coalitions together to support each other, but to also look at ways of progressing the race, progressing opportunities. So Phyllis Wheatley Club was one of those examples, those organizations that uh, was brought in, into this area, uh, namely by these two women leaders of the day. Uh, to and, and again, that sort of served as examples. There's all types of social organizations and civic organizations that still exist today. We're not even talking about the fraternal and sorority orders yet. And to some degree, this again is part of, I think, the Gates premise, but but maybe yours. To some degree, these places existed outside the white gaze. I I don't think I know much about them. Um, I don't know if people of color in Buffalo know a lot about them, probably more than I do. Um, but it sounds as if they they really were, at the time, unnoticed and were this underground network, so to speak. And that's the great story about the stories storytelling that uh, Dr. Henry Lewis Gates is is incorporating here. That's the message that he keeps drumming in that uh, out of necessity, our our people had to do these things. And it wasn't um, exclusive, okay? They were always very, as a people, we've always been very inclusive. But just out of necessity, we had to create our own networks because they weren't networks that were created for us. Uh, and, you know, when we look at the unfortunate events of 514, you know, this past summer, that, you know, that casts a, a magnifying glass, as you know, Dave, on those social ills that still, yeah. uh, that we as people still face, okay, that it just doesn't negatively impact my people, but impacts all of us, you know, economically and socially and other and otherwise. Um, and, you know, as a result of, of that, I think was sometimes what we lose, like any other organizations, especially young people, is really explaining the importance and the reasons why, you know, it's important to have these linkages and these networks. Uh, it's not so, so much out of just survival. It's just out of necessity and out of you know, the pride that was instilled in us long ago by our forefathers and foremothers, that if we don't do it for ourselves, there's no one else going to be out there to do it for us. I'm, I'm reminded of the uh, Shirley Chisholm quote. If they don't give you a seat at the table, 
bring your own bring chair. Your own chair. <laughs> and in a lot of ways, that's what this was. Uh, excluded from society at large, excluded from white society. Let's create our own community. Mm-hmm. And we still um, we still struggle with that. Um, you know, great thing with with what we're doing with the Michigan Street African American Heritage Corridor, and you mentioned about our strategic action plan that we have great pride in. Is we develop we spent a year developing this plan. I think one of the more imp- uh, proud things that I am in terms of being a part of the development of that plan is uh, we spent a year you know, uh, building consensus amongst people in the community itself. And this is well before 514 mm. uh, occurred. Uh, and the reason for that is there's been plans on the past in our corridor and in uh, east side of you know east side of Buffalo, uh, but they really didn't gain any traction because there was no synergy, no funding, but more importantly, no community no com- community support. And so the reason why we spent a lot of time consistent building, you know, again emblematic of what our forefathers, foremothers did with creating these networks and opportunities to to talk and discuss things, is to allow for folks in the community garner some ownership out of a plan that they feel they helped create. So uh, over the course of that year, we had several uh, community engagement sessions with different buckets of people, elders, okay, young people, um, uh, young professionals, uh, academians, um, uh, elected officials, you name them, we talked to them and focus grouped them to death too. but what we gleaned from the day was some just validating with some things that we already knew that in terms of a vision, creating a vision uh, for this corridor moving forward. So, you know, I'm reminded, you know, with the Henry Louis Gates episodes that, you know, sometimes you have to start at the grassroots level. That's that corny term people yeah. like to use. You have to start where people are to create the change that the transformational change that we all deserve. All right. When we come back from the break, we'll talk more about the strategic plan. We'll look at the future, perhaps, of the uh, the corridor. Terry Alford is here. He's executive director of the Michigan Street African American Heritage Corridor Commission. We'll be back with more of him right after this. This is Buffalo. What's next? Check out the Our Town series produced by WNED PBS, but captured by community members on the Buffalo Toronto Public Media YouTube channel. Ellicottville is a town of variety, not only in what they have to offer, but the people. The Burlington community is uh, becoming increasingly multicultural, and the library is reflecting that. Parks and playgrounds have been what makes the town of Tonawanda a great place to grow up. The series began in 2003, but it's making its debut on YouTube now. Although some of the businesses and people may have changed over the years, the spirit of these wonderful towns remain the same. We just didn't realize what we had in our own backyard. We need the next generation to protect it and carry on. Learn about Jamestown, Burlington, Welland, East Aurora, and more than a dozen other beautiful communities in our region by watching the Our Town series now on YouTube. I I would live there. Hey, have you seen WNED-PBS's Compact Science or Shakespeare's Greatest Hits? Here's five reasons to check them out. Compact Science is so fun, high energy, and educational that it won three prestigious awards, a Communicator Award, a Telly, and an award from the New York State Broadcasters Association. And Shakespeare's Greatest Hits also received a Communicator Award and a Telly for cinematically portraying some of Shakespeare's best monologues in bite-sized videos. Check them out at WNED.org or on YouTube. This is Buffalo What's Next. 
where we have conversations with the community about moving forward. To have your voice heard, press the Talk to Us button on the WBFO app, and we'll work to get your questions and comments on the air. Join us on Twitter at WBFO or email us at news at WBFO.org. Together, we'll have the conversations that are needed. This is WBFO, your NPR station. And this is Dave Debo continuing our discussion with Terry Alford from the Michigan Street African American Heritage Corridor Commission. Before the break, Terry, you said something that I think uh, was surprising to me. I think of the four linchpins there, the Colored Musicians Club, the Nash House, the Michigan Street Baptist Church, and even to some degree WUFO Radio. Mm -hmm. Those to me are like the the four uh, keystone locations. But you said this corridor is 3.5 miles. Mm-hmm. That surprises me. I, I thought of it as literally the block around those four places. Describe the rest of the corridor. So the, uh, I'm, I'm happy you asked that question because uh, I, I always preface it by saying I'm a, I'm a product of the, the community itself. All right. I was born and raised in a fruit belt area okay. of the city. Not too far okay, from there, Not yeah. too far from, from the corridor itself. And in my early years, my family lived in and around different neighborhoods, Maston Park, Cold Spring area, uh, uh, the historic uh, Willard Park. Okay, so all these are are historic neighborhoods that connect to the corridor itself. You know, our mantra is we serve as a commission, as the connection of the past, present, and future for uh, those historic neighborhoods that connect uh, within and beyond the corridor itself. So uh, when you look at the 3.5 miles, it's considered the arterial of the African American community. Again, it represents about 180. Uh, close to 185 years of uh, the African-American experience in the city of Buffalo. Uh, and it, you know, transforms over, you know, many generations, you know, many periods of uh, that include the abolitionist movement, the civil rights movement, the uh, suffragette movement as well, and the jazz period, okay? It's all reflected in this community. And though this 3.5 miles of the community, I remember growing up, I won't give my age out here. <laughs> I, I think you're still older than I am, but uh, uh, I won't go there, Dave. But, <laughs> That's okay. uh, <laughs> but, my beard is grayer, <laughs> which is probably the reason you say that. So, uh, you know, uh, I remember a vibrant neighborhood, vibrant neighborhoods uh, that uh, boasted, uh, you know, really successful businesses, uh, entertainment centers, uh, and residents that were all proud they worship played uh commerced with each other uh, so if you go down along the corridor and we like to say our corridor starts from michigan and william street and goes to the freedom wall at michigan and east ferry uh, you see many different stages of many developments happening all along this all along this corridor those are that's very exciting because we're we're in a period of renewal, if you will. All right. So put that in the context of your strategic plan. How do you take what you have and develop it to whatever that next level may be? Okay. So the next level, uh, focusing on heritage tourism, is what our focus is on the strategic action plan uh, that complements those four anchors that we talked about. Um, we see heritage tourism as the economic engine uh, that will help transform the economic development uh, of the entire rest of the quarter. So, uh, as we talked earlier, uh, in the late 60s, right through the 70s, there was a term called urban renewal that knocked down a lot of 
you know, businesses and, you know, historic structures of the day uh, with the promise of rebuild. That mm-hmm. never happened. You talk over, like, over 60 years of this now. So we see this heritage tourism as the linchpin, the, you know, to, to sort of drive this economic development. So we're, through our strategic action plan, uh, we have um, capital funding from Empire State Development, who created what's called the Eastside Economic Development Fund some years ago. And they have engineered that around corridors, one of them being yours. One of them being ours. The other three includes Jefferson Avenue, uh, Bailey Avenue, what they call Bailey Green, and uh, Fillmore, the Fillmore Broadway area. And within those those four corridors, uh, this capital uh, investment, if you will, focuses on nine different projects, three of which is in my corridor, the, the anchors themselves, but it also includes like Central Terminal, Broadway Market, MLK Park. And the whole, the whole point of this investment is to hopefully use this as a means of spurring economic development in all these corridors. And if we do that, then you see a rapid improvement, hopefully, of the east side that has been long marginalized and ignored uh, with this type of opportunity. Is the goal to have someone from Cleveland, Boulder, Colorado, wherever, say, I want to learn about African-American history. Buffalo has some cool sites. Let's come to Buffalo. Or is the goal more... I'm visiting Niagara Falls. Buffalo has a cool city hall. Oh, let's go over here to the Michigan Street Corridor as well. Both. <laughs> I had a hunch yeah, say that. Both of all that. We, you, you, <laughs> let me ask about the first one, though. You really think that we are enough of a destination to draw people to Buffalo specifically for your corridor? Well, I'll tell you. I'll answer it this way. We already are. We we don't even have our capital, our capital projects, which is uh, uh, expansion, stabilization of our historic buildings right now. Um uh, even despite the challenges of a pandemic, you know, what we found with our research, with our uh, metrics, is people have continued to come to Buffalo, in particular to this corridor, with their families from as far away as Pennsylvania, uh, New York City, Ohio, uh, Toronto, uh, you know, you know western part of Canada. Um, so we're already kind of like creating partnerships with sister uh, sister destinations like the Niagara Falls uh, 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 Center over there, uh, Broderick Park, Friends of Broderick Park, uh, and all points in between to sort of create these linkages. We're even actually looking at trying to create a partnership in Ontario where we know uh, Harry Tubman mm. once presided. Her church is still there. So, uh, as you know, many freedom seekers yeah. found their way there. This so, was the final way station, Buffalo, exactly. Broderick Park, right. the final way station on the Underground Railroad before Canada. Absolutely. So you, I think your question is a very important question. I just want your listeners to know this, that we are already doing those things. We have already seen great success. Now, once we start actually completing our, our vision in terms of building out those four anchors, with uh, their stabilization and renovations and things which they're very exciting. And I don't have time to talk about it today. I would just suggest that your listeners go online to uh, michiganstreetbuffalo.org and they can see the plan in all its glory. Um, But we're also looking to... uh, To summarize it quickly, step Mm -hmm. one is improve the facilities. Step two is promote the heck out of it. Promote the heck out of it. Uh, We're also doing economic development. So we received a couple grants over this past summer. One was from HUD through uh, Senator 
uh, Charles Schumer, that was $300,000, another $50,000 from the National Trust to focus on on uh, developing economic development in the corridor that complements these anchors. So the whole idea, Dave, is we don't just want people to come and visit these beautiful historic edifices. We want to keep them in the corridor, okay, to spend their dollars with their family, to enjoy restaurants or mm. green space or nearby entertainment venues or activities that we'll be uh, uh, promoting, you know, once all this plan is in place. Right now we're working on the short term, which in between two to three years, we hope to see all this all, you know, happening already. And that's the point where it would spin off into the fruit belt, or it could cascade up Jefferson to the area around the tops. That's the brand, uh, the, the broadest plan? Yeah, if I like to use the example of Larkinville. So, oh, uh, sure. so when you look at when they de- when Howard Zinsky developed Lar- the Larkin Building, okay, I don't know if he had the master plan in his head that that what that would what that would spur, but the economic reverberations. That's if you're throwing a, a small pebble in a in a puddle of water, and you see what reverberates out mm-hmm. from that. And if you go to Larkinville, you see it all points all directions the economic, you know, uh, progress that was a result of developing that building. And we hope to, you know, uh, replicate that in this part of the corridor, in the southern tip of the corridor. I have to ask you, uh, without the anchors that you have on the Michigan Street corridor, how do you see increased development or investment? Because they always say there's disinvestment. How do you see increased investment around Cold Spring, Jefferson? So, uh we, we see it as a most, I like to term it as a domino effect. So, you know, when you see success and, uh, you know, you see others wanted to emulate that success. So you, you look at best practices. But we, we definitely see that with the, the smart investment of these funds that, you know, strategically, you know, focuses on different areas of the east side, then they sort of work with each other, you know. Uh, when I go in and talk to anybody about this corridor, they automatically uh, assume that we represent African-American community in general, no matter what corridor it is. Because okay. you're a monolith, right? Right. So we, <laughs> yeah. we're connected that way with other cultural assets on the east side of Buffalo, that especially that that uh, promotes the African-American experience. So to answer your question more succinctly, yes, um, we have to start somewhere. Once, once we start seeing success— you know, as in the in the in the vision of actual women and minority-owned businesses with successful businesses, that we think is going to reverberate in all points uh, to on the east side of Buffalo, and that's really the strategy of the uh, of the economic development uh, east side economic development fund. That's the whole point of of this investment. You've led me perfectly to my favorite final question. Broadly speaking, what does Buffalo need? What does Buffalo need is uh, a more of a commitment to hear and allow for more voices, you know, to, to, to have more voices directly from the community at the table to talk not just about the ills of what's happening uh, or bef- befalling the, our community or the city of Buffalo, but to come up with solutions. You know, whenever I go and talk to any group and they always spew all the ills, my first question is, so what's your solution? What's your idea to turn things around? I think if we give the, if 
our city leaders give that allow for that more more of that opportunity and not wait for a tragic event to happen or to occur before we start opening up to other people uh, i think we will this city will be so much farther so much farther and so much better for it and you're optimistic i'm very optimistic all right Terry, thanks for being here. This was great. Thank you, Dave. Terry Elford is the executive director of the Michigan Street African American Heritage Corridor Commission. Stay with us. Jay Moran is next with Tesha Parker, Rooted in Love. This is Buffalo What's Next on WBFO. Watch the WNED PBS original production, Frederick Law Olmsted, Designing America. What his parks are all about is finding immensely practical solutions to the problem of building a dream in the middle of a city. Frederick Law Olmsted Designing America, now streaming on YouTube and the PBS video app. This is Buffalo What's Next, where we have conversations with the community about moving forward. To have your voice heard, press the Talk to Us button on the WBFO app, and we'll work to get your questions and comments on the air. Join us on Twitter at WBFO or email us at news at WBFO.org. Together, we'll have the conversations that are needed. This is WBFO, your NPR station. And uh, back here on Buffalo What's Next. Thanks very much for joining us uh, this morning. Tisha Parker with us uh, right now. She is the founder of Rooted in Love, Inc., and she is with us this morning. Thanks for joining us. Of course. Thank you for having me. Tisha, so much about your organization we need to talk about. Uh, you've been doing this now for about uh, five years. Mm-hmm. So uh, one of the really interesting parts right off the bat, something you mentioned to me, and I, I want to follow up on this a little bit, that when it comes to minority-led nonprofits, yeah, what, 10% last past a year? Is that mm-hmm. what you told me? Yeah, it's less less than 10% actually make it due to you know funding. A lot of people really don't have the resources and understanding of really how much it takes that goes into funding and founding and every sort of position that really is needed and necessary for a successful nonprofit. I mean, when I started, I had absolutely no experience. I didn't know what I was doing. I had no clue on (laughs) exactly what it would take. And it took me four years to even get out of funding it privately myself. So, I mean, definitely the funding and the feedback to understand how to get to the next level is such an issue. So when you talk about how difficult it is, the one question that pops in mind and probably a lot of people listening right now, why do it? (laughs) (laughs) Sometimes you have to ask yourself that question. I I do ask myself (laughs) that question. But, you know, I for me personally, it was something that we were raised to do. Like my grandparents always kind of drilled into us how, you know, we're put on this earth to help other people. We are here to grow and contribute to what essentially makes other people better. And in turn, then you're made better and you're fulfilled and you're whole. So for me, this was sort of a path that I wanted to take to kind of start like a redemption journey, so to speak. And then it kind of turned into, I really love doing this. And this is where my heart is, where my passion is. It's given my family a rebirth with our relationships. And it was a way for us to kind of have our glue, especially since it was based off of my grandmother and, you know, with her passing away right before our first event, it was a way for us to all kind of remain together. So it just motivates me to still build those partnerships and have like that piece of her. 
since she's not here. You know, if you go to uh, the website, which is uh, rootedinloveinc.com, you can read the story. And it's a, it's a lovely story about your grandmother mm-hmm. uh, that she inspired this because mm-hmm. of the type of person she was for her community. Mm-hmm. Talk about your grandmother. What was her name? Louise. Louise. Oh, she was such a gem. She was the, you know, grandmother to every person on the street. She was the mom. She was a school teacher. So um, she worked in Buffalo Public Schools and she saw what it was like, you know, to have a lot of kids that didn't have a you know, family system that was positive and she was just that light when it came to dealing with each and every person. I mean, it was so surreal to like think about it now. And growing up, it was always normal. You know, she would have all of her former students or she would have random people that were homeless or didn't have any place to go, you know, that maybe didn't have parents. All of the holidays were filled with them coming them being in her home or we would show up and, you know, she would have a random person sleeping in her extra room because that's the type of person that she was. So it's just, it was such a beautiful way to cement her legacy and continue to get that out to people that, you know, that didn't know her to still experience her. Are we seeing, uh, does this take us back to a time then perhaps where a, a street, a neighborhood, was maybe a little bit different than it is today, that there could be these families together that were looking out for each other, looking out for for the folks who um, you know, maybe needed a little help or maybe needed a lot of help. Yeah, I mean, I definitely think that her home is reminiscent of that. I mean, that was her legacy when she was alive and now us being located out of her home. On I mean, Riley Street. Yep, mm-hmm. on Riley Street. So we have, you know, families that were still over are still over there that were over there when she was alive um that it's just it's so cool to see like their generations now and how we've all grown up together how they still live over there and to see like her home still representing just being a place that was a safe haven for people i mean it it just only made sense to be located there have that as our main point it just made sense it's interesting because, you know, we really haven't even talked about what your organization actually does just yet. And uh, <laughs> but at the same time, I think you've already described it. Mm-hmm. You're, you're you're picking up where your grandmother left off in her community. Um, but you got you you know you, you know you're trying to help out homeless initially, mm-hmm. and then anybody who really needed help. Mm-hmm. Now you have a delivery van. You're delivering things, mm-hmm. which of course has become so important for a variety of reasons, mm-hmm. for sure. Uh, what I'm, I'm curious about, though, is um, just how busy you became after May 14th. Man, it was it was truly nonstop. I mean, we had such an exceptional surge from Monday after the shootings all the way until the end of July. Like, we're just now able to get our footing where we're able to organize again. We're able to really have... Um, you know, a just a, a standard ground. We're able to well, you're not have just our, a- acting in the moment, trying yeah, to react in the moment. Yeah, because I feel like right after the shootings, it was so reactionary. We had so many pop ups that it was it was so exhausting. To be completely honest, it was 
like we're a small staff anyway. And a lot of my staff works full-time jobs. So it was so hard when it came to the balance because it put a lot on, you know, my mom, who is my COO, she is retired, but she was there every single day. If she wasn't there, I was there. And then, you know, we had the rest of our family and friends that work full time that are coming over after they get out of work. And they're there until like 10 and 11 o'clock at night trying to help us sort, trying to help us just gain control. Because, I mean, there was so many donations coming in that we couldn't even get up the stairs. We couldn't get into our location. We couldn't even walk inside. You couldn't open the door the whole way. (laughs) Like it was so much and it was so extremely overwhelming. But now it's so manageable and so much positivity has come out of it. But at the same time, I think it still stands to reason that there's a lot of issues that haven't been addressed. So, And one of those issues is this, I mean, we can call it a lot of different things, but when, when the store, the top store was forced to close, mm-hmm. the words food desert, food apartheid mm-hmm. became prominent. That Absolutely. There are people in this neighborhood, if they don't have this store, they have no options. Did you see that? Did you see that at these pop-up uh, markets that you, you guys were? Uh, so uh, we saw two different things. Okay. So the first thing I would definitely say is, yes, you do have that over there. You know, that is the only grocery store, but you have a huge amount of the population over there that already was not going to that grocery store okay. because they can't afford to shop in a grocery store. So they're doing their grocery shopping at corner stores or they're doing it at, you know, soup kitchens, food pantries or at Dollar Tree. You know, because that's where they're getting the most for their money. Okay. It's that was already an issue. And then to turn around and now you have the other side of it. You had a lot of people that did kind of take over take advantage of it. So it was people that maybe necessarily weren't in need that were taking it and then they were, you know, reselling it to the we people. We did hear about stories about that. They were true, huh? Yeah. yeah so it, it was very, very sad. But you had you also had the people that were so in need. And it was so much desperation that they were going to every pop-up because they want to hoard it because they know they're not going to get it again. They know that after the media turns its back and, you know, everybody moves on, which you saw over there, you know, you had a huge media rush. And then after a lot of the funerals, all of that died down. So you have the true organizations that have been over there that are helping the people. And now there's like a expectation that sometimes is making it hard for people to meet that need because now everything has kind of died down. Right. You're not stepping through pallets of produce to get into your office like Correct. you were for a couple of exactly. months Exactly. So you had that huge influx where, you know, you have donations every single day. You have, st- I mean, our Amazon wish list is linked to my house. I was on first name basis with the Amazon driver because he was coming every day and it was like 80, 90 150 boxes being left in behind my gate and now if we get two a week you know it's we still receive donations because like we're fortunate and we we have the funding where we're able to you know purchase according to people's needs if we you know don't have the items in stock and we receive such an excess where we're able to still meet the need but I think there's a lot of societal issues that really weren't addressed when it came to this. And it, it so with us still being in the food desert and then the fact that people have the lack of transportation so they're not making it to these grocery stores anyway, 
And then you still have the issue of most people cannot afford that grocery store. Or people still choose canned items over the fresh produce because if you're a lot of people don't know about double up food box or they don't know, you know, that they can get these fresh items. You know, it's it's still so much more expensive, especially after the pandemic than it even was before the pandemic. So if they weren't paying for it before the pandemic, they're not spending their money on it now. I mean, a lot of our clients, too, they're people that work every day. There's people that make way more money than me, but they can't afford to feed their families because they're paying, you know, over in rent Mm -hmm. or, you know, they may have five children. Well, you have five growing children. And that's expensive. They're eating you out of house and home and you're just barely making enough to make ends meet. So our whole mission is to just offer that that fresh quality produce with our partnerships, you know, with Desiderios or with local farming. We want to offer the best of the best where it's free and it's for any and everyone. It's no income guidelines. We're just taking basic information so we can use that for our records when it comes to the grants. But we're pushing the fresh items. We're helping with, you know, hygiene, with household items. So those are the most expensive things on someone's grocery list. If the only thing they have to do is go to the store and get meats, you know, that's saving them so much money. And they can come every single week. It just it's such a a wonderful opportunity for people that really find themselves in need. Like my my grandmother fed her seven children off of soup kitchens. So my family knows what it's like to have that struggle where you may not know where you're getting your next meal. Like we were the kids that had hand me downs. They had hand me downs. You know, my mother didn't have anything new until she was an adult. So it's. It's such an interesting perspective when it comes to how we deal with people and how we approach, especially our clients. Tisha Parker is with us on Buffalo What's Next, the founder of Rooted in Love, Inc., and uh, Buffalo helping out uh, those people who need help. And we're getting into that a little bit. And, I, and that when you were talking about, and if you don't mind expanding, mm-hmm. um, about some of the stories of the people who were coming or are coming to these pop-up markets are you hearing stories? I mean, obviously not everybody's probably going to share everything that they have about their issues, but what kind of stories are you hearing about? What what are the circumstances that some of these folks are going through? I mean, some people just, life hits them. Like we have people coming to us because they lost their jobs after the pandemic and they maybe have taken a new job, but they work way less hours or they make less money, you know, or they can't even make it to the store because of the hours that they do work. You know, there's families that they just have so many people. There was a huge uptick in how many seniors were servicing. Hmm. Seniors that may be living on a fixed income and they turned around and now they have custody or they're, you know, not legal custody, but they have custody of their grandchildren or great-grandchildren because of their family circumstances. So they can't even afford to feed the kids because they didn't intend on having them anyway, you know? So we have a lot of grandparents. I mean, one specific family I think of, like, she has 12 grandkids now that she feeds. And she's like... 12 grandchildren. 12 grandchildren. It's insane to me 
But she's like, you know, we're on a fixed income, me and my husband. Like, we can't even afford to feed ourselves. And now we're paying rent. And now we have these kids. Like, you know, they need help with clothes. So we'll send them. We used to take clothes, but now we send them to a partner of ours to get the clothes. Um, If they need furnitures, we have referral agencies for that. So if they need things like we have places to send them to, but some people are just a victim of circumstance. Like, who are we to judge? Because right. you never know. That can be any of us. Like, we could lose our jobs and we may find ourselves needing help. So how embarrassing is it, you know, to have to go to an agency in general to already not be able to feed your family? And then, you know, you have to present your income guidelines and you t- you're told, like, Oh no, you make a little bit too much, so we can't help you. Like, and you're turning them away. Right. It's just such a sad, sad case, and I don't think a lot of people understand that. Um, your grandmother would have understood. Mm-hmm. It's interesting, also, about her end of life mm-hmm. and the start of your organization. It's quite the. You can call it a lot of different things. I mean, coincidence doesn't. Uh, mm-hmm. I don't think. Uh, equal that but why don't you tell the story so my my grandmother um she was diagnosed with dementia and she became very quickly nonverbal. um things were really spiraling downhill where she had to be moved from her home into a nursing nursing home and um when i started rooted it was just something that we were already doing together you know i we always knew people that maybe needed help so okay i coupon a lot let me go and give these canned goods or i'll give away my furniture i swore i was moving out of my parents house for like six years before i actually did because <laughs> i kept buying stuff and it was just in their house but you know you just meet people that just may need it a little bit more and you know it just was such a wonderful opportunity when I incorporated Rooted. I I went down. I was like running right to her nursing home. And I got there and I'm like telling her, I'm showing her paperwork. And then she says, good job. (laughs) She's like, this is wonderful, you know. And she never spoke again, but she passed away right before our first event. And it was was such a, a weird moment for our family because we had spent the summer, you know, getting everything together. We got the house together. We had all these intentions, you know, oh, we're going to do this first and we're going to do that first and how quickly things change and align how they're supposed to. You know, it may not be where it's giving up on the dream, but maybe it's just like timing it better. Maybe it's a later in life. And um, when we got to the point where she had passed away, we were let's cancel this event. We don't need to do it. And I mean, we always talk about when we sit around my family's together, like, ah, oh, we're so glad we, we didn't. Right. Because that first event, I mean, we had a community uh, Thanksgiving dinner. Hmm. And so how we used to do it was we would make all the food. So we have four households and we're baking everything. We're making mac and cheese. I mean, it's a full spread. And we would make enough to feed about 400, 500 people, and it would take us days. And the first event fed 347 people where they were not only able to have a meal there, but a lot of them were able to take stuff to go. And I remember being, I mean, we were crying at the event because it was just so moving to have so many people there. And there were so many people that were homeless that actually knew my grandmother. And when she 
first started with her dementia, she would wander. So um, they were the ones that would find her. <laughs> so <laughs> it just was she was an avid bus rider. So she would go and take the bus, but she would get lost, you know, because she was kind of losing it slowly at first. And they were those people that led her back home and always knew where to go and what to say to her to calm her down. So it was just full circle to see them come to us now. And they're sitting at this Thanksgiving dinner and they're sharing their stories. A lot of them we had seen because she always had homeless people in her house. Right. So um, it, w- it was just such a jaw-dropping moment, you know, for our, our family. And it's something that is so pure and sticks with us for sure in our story. Tisha Parker is with us on Buffalo What's Next for another 10 minutes or so here talking about Rooted in Love, uh, her organization that has been uh, helping out uh, the those uh, who need help here mm-hmm. in western New York. Um, let's now fast forward back to to May 14th and just, just beyond and how busy things got. And you told me that your organization went viral. Yes. <laughs> What a time. <laughs> <laughs> For most people, they would say that's a great thing. <laughs> you say it with a little, little mix of, uh, of uh, both, uh, I guess, pride to a certain extent, but also a little bit of exhaustion because it really um, it stretched you out. It, it really was super stressful. I mean, I'm so thankful. I'm so appreciative because I think, you know, especially when it comes to Buffalo, like this, unfortunately, the negativity surrounding why we were getting the attention was so unfortunate. It was so sad. And I mean, we knew a couple of people that passed away. We even had, my cousin was in the grocery store when it was happening. I mean, and running out the back. So it was such a scary day for us, especially being located over there. But so much positivity is stemming from it for us. You know, example. Give me an example. We are launching a community fridge partnership with the Meriwether Library, which is right across from the the top shooting. Um, it's it's really taken a mind of its own because they really want to do something with the community. Um, now we have launched a partnership between us, the Delavan Grider Center, Every Bottom Covered, Buffalo Community Fridges, a lot of those organizations that were, we're really doing the work and it's so beautiful to see all of our relationships with each other blossom into something better for the community. It's just, it's really empowering. And I think you know, it gives hope to a lot of the younger people because it's a lot of young people running those organizations. This question came to me as you were talking. Um, these efforts and this uh, this, this spirit, mm-hmm. is it something that was always there inside the black community here in Buffalo? Or is it, is, and is it just getting focused upon right now? I think it was there. I think it's definitely heightened now because of, that negative situation having such a racial component. So I think, you know, it, it it leaves a lot of people feeling uneasy, but I think it's a wonderful time for especially minority organizations to really like band together for the the community. Like a lot of people want to see that representation. A lot of them want to be involved. They want to have that trust with the organizations. I mean, I can truly say like the people that come to us, like, I know they trust us. I know that they love that we don't treat them with judgment. We're anonymous. Like, we don't have, you know, huge sign. It's not a arrows pointing outside right. of our location. So I think having that 
trust within the community and with the community, it's allowing so much more positivity to flow, at least on our end. I'm, I know there are, you know, negative experiences, but I don't even want to okay. focus on that because it's, you know, it's just, where does that get us? You know, it's just sometimes things don't work and you move on, you know? Uh, are there the lessons in that, though, that that that, that, that are worth mentioning uh, that, you know? I think there's huge lessons. I think there's huge lessons in, you know, being intentional with who you're aligning with. I think there's huge lessons in being intentional with what you're putting out to the world, especially with this platform right now. I think there's, you know, always going to be a negative stance on every situation. But I think everything that's already come from it, like that situation was so negative with the shootings that for us like even when we were so stressed i was just like but we have to do this right. like we don't even have a choice we have to we have to do it for our clients we have to do it for our people like i i mean even i have family members that come to us that need help there's no shame in asking for help and i think you know focusing our efforts on the positive where it leads to the betterment of even communication when it comes to organizations working together or when it comes to us in the community. We just have to do better for each other. And that's regardless of race. We we just have to. Uh, interesting to, about uh, the idea that people are reaching out and trying to help. Um, one real noteworthy one I saw it on your Instagram account, Micah Hyde yeah. of the Buffalo Bills, unfortunately injured and out for the season. <laughs> Too bad in a lot of ways there, yeah. but that's the side. So, mm-hmm. But he came through for your organization. His foundation did. Yeah, Micah Hyde is fantastic. He's such a wonderful person. And um, that team at Imagine for Youth, Tracy, Amanda, Micah, all of them are such beautiful people. I mean, I've I've known them for a couple years and um you know, after the shootings, Micah really wanted to do something where it was a huge statement. He wanted to be able to say he was really giving back and not just like donating to the funds that were set up, but stepping beyond that and meeting, you know, face to face when it came to um community organizations that were actually operating on the east side or you know getting on a call i i have a great relationship with his team over there and tracy i mean a couple weeks ago he he called me up he was the one that told me um you know hey i know you guys are trying to get a delivery truck we're going to be offering delivery after the first of the year but he was like we want to help so even if we can give, you know, 5000 like, what can we do? How can we help make it better? And, you know, they are just, they've been so good to us. Michael was the first Bills player to ever donate to Rooted. Mm. So it was something that came so full circle because um, that was back in 2019 that he donated to us. And it was our little prize check. Like we were, <laughs> we were like all like, we should frame this. It came from Micah Hyde. So it's so beautiful to see, you know, years later, we still have that relationship. And um, now the NFL has chosen to match his grant. So it's, it's such a blessing when it came to that truck because now we're able to get ready to service so many more people that really, truly do need it. What about uh, 
for someone else who wants to help right now? What can they do? Do you have a fundraiser? You have fundraisers, or what? What? Yeah. What, what, what can we look forward to here? So uh, definitely, um, we're always accepting donations either in person. We're open every Saturday at six seventy Riley. Um, we do have our Give Butter campaign that's live on our website, so that's year round. But on November twenty fifth, we're partnering with Resurgence. So the day after Thanksgiving, <laughs> we're partnering with Resurgence. We're gonna do a jazz um, night, and it's gonna be called Rocking for rooted so we have a couple local jazz bands and acts coming out where we're just going to have appetizers we're going to have just a good time a good theme tray auction where we're able to just pack the house and um, raise some money for rooted especially um with the start of next year you can uh, folks uh, find out more on your website about yep, that so it'll be listed uh early next week <laughs> monday <laughs> another, morning on our another website another thing on your to-do list <laughs> just what you needed <laughs> but it'll be it'll be listed um you'll be able to get tickets so it'll be a really beautiful night um final question or one of the final questions we have here um what does the east side need what does the east side of buffalo need what what what's what we talk about what's next yeah what's needed i i think truly what's needed is it's gonna be i hate to say it but and put a focus on it but it's the money it's you know people that want to believe in given opportunities to people that you may not want to deal with every single day. I mean, we've been yelled at, we've been screamed at, we've had protests at our events, and we still get up every day, and those are the people that we want to help the most. So I think looking past the negativity, right now there's people that are truly so hurt, and the East Side needs so much healing when it comes to the mental health when it comes to just the compassion when helping, I think it's it's crucial to just, even if it's feet on the ground, volunteering with the organizations that truly don't, they're smaller. Us, you know, a lot of the other organizations I mentioned, they need the volunteers. They need the the monetary donations to help keep them going. They need the good words and encouraging notes that are sent. I think especially um, building up that trust again is is definitely needed. Tisha Parker, uh, I encourage everybody to find out more about your story at rootedinloveinc.com. Thanks for sharing Thank with you us so on much. Buffalo What's Next. This has been uh, Buffalo What's Next. Thanks to Terry Alford from the uh, Michigan Avenue uh, Heritage Corridor. And, of course, Tisha Parker, our guest here on Buffalo What's Next. We're back with you tomorrow at 10 on WBFO and WBFO HD1 Buffalo, WOLN Olean, and WUBJ Jamestown, your NPR station.